Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel can be found in the first third of your Bible. It's a part of the historical books. We are going week by week through this book, which is in the main an account of the, the reign of King David. And we have reached the fifth chapter. We'll be looking this morning at the first section of chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 5, beginning at verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater. For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Elaphelet. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing upon it. Lord, we come to you this morning, because even though your word is before us, we know we need your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds, 
to bring conviction to our hearts, to open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your word. And so we ask this morning that your word would strike us deeply, that as we study it, we would know more and more of who you are and more and more of your promises. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Perhaps I don't need to tell you, but waiting is hard. It's hard to wait for something to come about, especially that we are eager to happen. And part of what makes waiting so hard is wondering if it will ever happen at all, what we expect or desire. My family and I lived for about a decade in the city of Cleveland. And in 1964, Cleveland, the Cleveland Browns actually won a professional sports championship. And then for the next 50-some-odd years, there were no more championships in Cleveland. There was plenty of heartache. There was the shot. There was the drive. There was the fumble. There were plenty of times in which a championship was just ripped out from under the city of Cleveland until finally the Cavaliers broke that long drought. But what made that waiting so painful for the citizens of Cleveland was they began to wonder if they were cursed, if they would ever win a championship. You would think that by pure chance you would win once every few decades, but not in Cleveland. Well, you know, children know what it's like to wait to and to be agonized by waiting. When Christmas Day is about to approach, and you perhaps if you're like me when I was a kid, you begin to try to negotiate with your parents. Can't we just open one or two gifts a, a few days early? Christmas seems so far away. Or there's advanced arguing as well when on Christmas Eve the clock strikes 12 o'clock, you say, well, now it's technically Christmas. We should be able to open up our presents now, right? You don't want to wait. We don't like it. But David here has been waiting for many years. He waited about a decade from the time in which he was anointed king by Solomon until he became king in Hebron. And then he waited another seven and a half years of civil war for this moment. Now, at long last, the wait is over. This chapter gives us a series of events to see David's reign and kingship in proper perspective. We see from this fifth chapter of 2 Samuel that the Lord is at work. That the Lord is keeping His promises. And this is very important for you and for me as we wait on God's promises for us. So this morning I'd like us to see three stories or vignettes. First we see a coronation as David is crowned king in the beginning part of this chapter. And then secondly we see a capital as David takes Jerusalem and makes it the capital of his kingdom. And then third, we see a consolidation of David's kingship and power. A coronation, a capital, 
and a consolidation. Let's begin then with chapter 5 at verse 1 and see David's coronation. Now, remember how we have gotten to this place. The waiting is over, but don't forget where we've been. Back when David was young, somewhere between the ages of 10 and 15, the scriptures don't tell us precisely, Samuel came to the house of David's father to anoint a king who would succeed Saul because the Lord had taken the kingdom from Saul. And then David went and served Saul in his court. He played the harp for David, or excuse me, for Saul, when a, a spirit of, of wickedness came upon him. David calmed Saul's spirit. And then David went out and fought and defeated Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. And he led Saul's army out into battle against their enemies. Now, because of that, Saul became jealous of David. You may recall that the women of Israel came up with that hit song. It was on the Israelite top 40. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his ten thousands. And when Saul heard that, it literally drove him mad. And so David had to go on the run as Saul tried to kill him. And David was on the run for about seven years. And then, at the end of 1 Samuel, and at the beginning of 2 Samuel, we recall that Saul and his three sons were killed. And that David then became king in Hebron. But another seven and a half years of civil war needed to pass until this moment came. And the waiting for David was not just waiting. We shouldn't get the idea that David was simply marking off time. No, there was resistance to David's reign. He had to flee for his life from Saul. Everywhere he turned, there was disaster looming. And then after the death of Saul, Abner set up a rival kingdom, a rebellion against David. And then when Abner came seeking peace and you just thought everything was going to come together, Joab murders Abner, careless of the consequences, if that will continue a division of the kingdoms. And then as we saw last week, two thugs murdered Ishbosheth, and that threatened the proposed peace even more. David had to have been wondering what God was doing. It's not as if David was unsure of God's intention. God had promised to bring the kingdom to him, to make him king. But it certainly wasn't coming about with any level of speed. You can imagine as David went from one difficulty to another to another, he wondered when God was going to keep his promise. This is something that we can experience in our own lives. You know, many of us, especially as we're younger, desire a godly spouse. And we want the Lord to bring us a spouse who follows the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can form a godly home and have godly children and, and bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But sometimes it just seems like God is taking a long time to bring that person to us. I mean... I would have preferred, if the moment I wanted a spouse, that God would have brought my wife along, preferably with a, spot, a sign on her that said, Fred's spouse. 
So I wouldn't have had to guess at all. But that's, that's not how it works out. I went several years until the Lord in his wisdom saw fit to bring me my lovely wife. Perhaps you've experienced the same thing. Perhaps you're in that waiting time right now. God seemed to put so many barriers in the way of his promise to David. Do you wonder about God? Do you wonder why he is letting our nation turn more and more away from him? Do you wonder why he doesn't bring more and greater success to the gospel in the world. We would think and we would hope that the gospel would just sweep across the world and that conversions would be counted in mass in thousands and that the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ would be found all throughout every nation. But that's not what we see right now. Or perhaps personally, you may wonder why God has allowed hardships and difficulties in your life. Why you have pain and heartache why you have physical ailments that curtail your ability to do things, why you have financial challenges, why there are struggles with people who are close to you. What's God doing? Well, we have an answer with respect to David. And I think as we look at this, it will help us to see our own view of God's promises to us in a new light. The answer to the promise to David comes now. Verse 1 is what we have been waiting for all this time. There are no more individuals. There are no more schemes. All of the tribes come to David. They are united behind David. David is to be king over all of Israel. And they come with three arguments or three reasons why they are uniting with David. They begin with the most basic and obvious. In verse 1, they say, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Now this is obvious because all of the Israelites were one people. They're called the Israelites because they were descended from one patriarch, Jacob, who was renamed Israel by the Lord. And it made absolutely no sense for them to be separated. Their kinship called for a common cause. And after all, the world then, as it is now, was a dangerous place. It was filled with hostile tribes who had no relationship with the Israelites and wanted to destroy them. And so after all, it just made sense for Israel to be one kingdom. And the second reason that they bring is that they had experience with David's leadership. Look at verse 2. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. The Israelites had known success under David's leadership. When Saul was the king, it was actually David who took the army out. It was David who protected them against the enemy. It was David who drew up the battle plans. It was David who provided for them that they had weaponry and food and water. And after all, this was what drove Saul to a, a jealous rage. That all of Israel knew that David was the one who led them. But the last reason they give is the most significant. It's in the second part of verse 2. And the Lord said to you, 
You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. In the end, it was not family ties that would save them. It wasn't skilled leadership either. They knew that God had promised the kingdom to David. And that was what brought this day about. God's promise. God's promise is not stopped by anything. Not by Saul's hatred. Not by David's mistakes. Not by a rebellion of tribes. No, God's promises are sure and certain. Do not lose sight of the fact that this was a long time coming with great opposition against David. It seems a quick period of time to us because we're simply reading about it. We can read of three decades in 15 or 30 minutes. This was a long period of time that David had to wait. And that reminds you that you can trust God's word, even when it seems so far away. Are you despairing of a family member who has not believed in Jesus? Well, you need to keep on trusting God and his word. Do you wonder whether God's kingdom will come to this sin-filled world? Trust God and His Word. His promises will be accomplished. Do you find it hard to keep on in obedience to the Lord? You need to know that God is not ignoring His promises. He is fulfilling them in His time. Then in verse 6, we come to a second story. Verse 5 actually sets it up. In verse 5 we're told that David reigned at Hebron seven years and six months. And then at Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. And so David and his men went up to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. This is where we are introduced to Jerusalem. It is mentioned before in the Bible, but often it is referred to as Jebus. Now, you would understand why it's called Jebus, because the Jebusites live there. And they were the ones living there and in charge of it. As a matter of fact, previous mentions of Jerusalem really served to highlight the fact that the Israelites had not conquered this city. They hadn't taken it as they were supposed to. They were supposed to drive out the inhabitants of the land and to take the land. Now, we are used to thinking about Jerusalem as a great and mighty city. It's often referred to as Zion. But actually, in verse 7 here, is the first time in all of the Bible that reference is made to Zion. Right now what we have is a small city that has little significance. It is a small fortress city between the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah. In the time between the very first days of the Judges and now, it's not even mentioned throughout the rest of the book of Judges, throughout the reign of Saul. And yet David sets his eye on it. It will be the capital of his kingdom, we are told. 
He will reign there. For 33 years, he will rename it Jerusalem, which means city of peace. It will be home to the temple of God himself, his dwelling place on earth. And if we look further ahead in history, it will be the place where our Lord Jesus Christ will go in the last days of his ministry and life. It will be the place where he suffers and dies, the center of all the universe for the most significant event in all of history. And at the end of the Bible, at all time, we will see it again in its most significant place. The holy city of Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, prepared for the people of God. It is the picture of God's kingdom on earth. It represents victory, hope, and peace. But what is it now? Right now, it's a small place occupied by sarcastic unbelievers. David, you want to come up here? We're going to put the blind team and the men who can't walk up on the wall. That's how little chance you have of attacking and taking this citadel. It's populated by people that care nothing for David. They care nothing for David's God. They believe none of his promises. It is a small little plot of land that's insignificant. As always, Ralph Davis has a wonderful way of putting it. He says, God began with 11 acres of nothing. That's the kingdom of God. This is important for us to remember. We often want God to show us not how great He is, but how great we are. We want victories, and not close ones either, not nail biters. No, we want overwhelming ones. We want to see the church overflowing. We want it to be flush with resources. We want people eager to submit to the Bible. But so often, that's not the reality, is it? God's kingdom starts with small children, with little Bible studies, with mercy meals, with half-filled sanctuaries. The gospel may appear to make little progress at times, but do not doubt God. Because what we see here is a significant victory. Jebus was a fortress. Judah had taken and burnt the city of Jerusalem back in Judges chapter 1. But the Jebusites had not been driven out. They couldn't be dislodged from the fortress. You will recall that Israel was called not just to defeat the Canaanites, but to dispossess them is the verb that's used. They were to drive them out and to take over their land and their cities. But this had not happened. This was a victory that had been promised long ago. It wasn't promised to Moses. It wasn't promised to Joshua. Do you know who it was promised to? Abraham. All the way back in Genesis chapter 15, 800 years before 2 Samuel 5, God makes a covenant with Abraham. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Those last three words of that promise are being made true in David's day. 800 years after the promise was made. And so, this is something that we don't know exactly how David took the city. It could be that he had men climb up this water shaft. We don't know exactly what this means in terms of going up the water shaft. Part of the problem is the word for water shaft only occurs here in all of the Bible. So it's possible that they went up a tunnel that was a water shaft. It's also possible that they cut off the city's water supply through that water shaft. It's hard to tell. But we do know it's a significant victory. It's a significant victory especially because it becomes David's capital. And that solves a problem that could have destroyed David's kingdom. You see, David could have kept his capital at Hebron where he was, but that would have offended all of the northern tribes. Or he could have moved the capital back to Saul's capital with the northern tribes, and that would have offended Judah. So what does David do? Well, right now he has a David-only right in the middle place for a capital. Judah can't claim it. Benjamin can't claim it. None of the other tribes can claim it. It's only David's. You might think about this in, in the way in which our nation at its founding created Washington, D.C. as our capital. It was not a part of a southern state. It was not a part of a northern state. Our founding fathers deliberately in the Constitution created a city to be a capital that was not a part of a state so that no state could be upset at another state that had an advantage. That's what David does here. But all of these details really aren't even that important. What is important is that even God's old promises are certain. This promise was made to Abraham 800 years prior. That is about three times the length that our nation has existed. That's pretty old. Now, why is that important? Why is it important to you and me today, in 2021, that God kept an 800-year-old promise to Abraham 3,000 years ago to David? Because we have old promises. Our promises are even older. We have 2,000-year-old promises. They make an 800-year-old promise seem like a spring chicken. When Jesus promises to prepare a place for us in His Father's house, that's a 2,000-year-old promise that you're holding on to. When Jesus promises that not one whom the Father has given to him will be cast out, that is a promise that is two millennia old. When Jesus promises that the sins of everyone who believes in him are forgiven, that is a 2,000 year old promise that is 
affects your life today. You can trust Jesus and His promises, even at times when they seem very far away. Jesus' promises do not have an expiration date. You could pass them on to your children and on to your grandchildren. You can rest sure in that promise. Well, then in verse 11, we have a third story. Now, technically, this part of chapter 5 is out of chronological order. And if I wanted to, I could spend about the next 20 minutes boring you with the details from commentators about why this isn't in chronological order and why it should be and what the Bible does wrong here and it's not a real history book. The truth of the matter is, the Bible does not present events as strict chronological history. It can be thematic at times. It has a purpose for the way in which it presents events. It's very likely that the events of chapter 11, or excuse me, verse 11 and verse 12 occur later in David's reign. It wouldn't make any sense, for example, for the Philistines to wait until after David has attacked and taken Jerusalem to mount their own attack as they do at the end of this chapter. But even more importantly, Hiram, the king of Tyre, only overlaps David's reign in the last 10 years of his reign. So this is something that the Bible has inserted here with a purpose. So why tell us about Hiram and some trees and some carpenters? Well, the significance is in what God has brought about through David. David started out not even as king over all of Israel. His capital was a small and an insignificant city, but God has been faithful. We see here in verse 10 that David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. God had built up David's kingdom because it was an expression of God's kingdom. It was an earthly visible expression of the kingdom of God. And the world took notice of what God had done. Tyre was one of the wealthiest and most powerful kingdoms in the land. Its cedars were valued throughout the whole area. They were large, old, strong, sturdy trees. And they were used to build palaces and temples because not only were they strong, they gave, they gave off a wonderful aroma. Have you ever had a cedar chest? You put things in the cedar chest just so that they smell like cedar, right? And so that's what temples and palaces wanted. And Hiram not only sent cedars, he actually caused David's house to be built. It was an action of great honor and respect. He built a palace for David. Remember, this house is not a shack. This is David's palace. We will see later on in this book that David goes to the Lord and he says, How is it that I live in this wondrous house and you dwell in a tent, O Lord? Let me build a house for you. This is a magnificent palace. And so what we see here is a foretaste of the glory of God being seen throughout all of the nations. It's what the psalmist describes in Psalm 86. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. 
It's what the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 60. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. What we see here is the world taking notice of what God is doing. And they are impressed. And they seek to honor God's people. And they seek to find favor with God's people and with God. Now notice how David reacts to this in verse 12. David doesn't react by saying, you know, I'm a really great king. He doesn't even respond by saying, you know, God has really blessed me. God has really poured blessings out on me. And if I'm honest, our temptation is to see God's work only in terms of the blessings that it gives to us personally. But that is not David's perspective. David sees that God has exalted his kingdom, in verse 12, for the sake of his people, Israel. David's kingdom is for the people's benefit, not his. And this is completely the opposite of worldly wisdom. According to the world, people are supposed to serve kings. People are supposed to benefit kings, not the other way around. But that's exactly how the kingdom of God works. In the kingdom of God, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. In the kingdom of God, Jesus tells us in Luke 22, let the greatest among you serve. And so that, brothers and sisters, is our calling as we follow Jesus. Jesus' kingdom does not exist to exalt you. It doesn't exist to bring you ease and comfort. It exists for the glory of Jesus and the good of his people. That's why we serve. That's why we make meals. That's why we teach children. It's why we usher. It's why we serve in the nursery. It's why we repair things at church. It's why we pray for each other. For the benefit of others. To serve Jesus. To see His glory spread throughout Katy, Houston, and the whole world. Well, in conclusion... Here we have three stories about the establishment and exaltation of David's kingdom so long awaited. David may have wondered why it took so long, just like you wonder why God has not answered your prayers. But the answer that we would give to David and must give to ourselves is that the waiting shows us the greatness and the unstoppable nature of God's promises. Nothing can stand in their way. Time does not make them stale or void. God's promises to you are always yes in Jesus. Will you embrace those promises today? God has promised to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. He has promised to prepare a place for you and to dwell with you for all eternity. He has promised never to leave you or to forsake you. Stop trying to figure out how to survive life 
without Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And know that the Lord will save you and bless you. Let's pray.